Welcome to the Mental Health Support for Schools podcast. I'm Dr. Katiba Chitsabeeson and welcome to a very important podcast. Uh, Today we're going to be discussing the provision of mental health support in schools and colleges. I'm the Associate National Clinical Director for Children and Young People's Mental Health at NHS England and also a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist working in Greater Manchester. Well, I'm Dave Hill. I'm the Executive Director for Children, Families, Lifelong Learning and Culture at Surrey County Council. But more importantly, I'm part of the Surrey Heartlands Integrated Care System. And I'm Dr Andrew Murray, GP and Clinical Chair at Merton Clinical Commissioning Group and part of the South West London Health and Care Partnership. I've been leading a programme of work across South West London on children and young people's mental health. So a wealth of experience, I think, between us to really look at some of the systems across the country to think about how we can provide better support for children and young people, particularly within schools and colleges. If we look at some of the statistics, we know that about 13% of young people between the ages of 5 and 19 have a mental health need. And what concerns me is that those rates are particularly high for our older adolescents, so up to about 23% for young girls. Half of all mental health problems are established by the age of 14, with three quarters established by 24 years of age. I mean, that just really emphasises the point of early intervention. And I think we know, don't we, that access to mental health services and broader support is needed to ensure that children and young people are able to maximise their chances for a happy and healthy life. Yeah, certainly we concluded when we were looking at this in South West London that we just weren't intervening early enough. I agree very strongly with that. And of course, the Children and Young People's Mental Health Dream Paper sets out proposals to improve mental health support in schools and colleges, a prime source of early help work. So thinking about our ambitions around trying to provide support that's accessible, effective and sustainable, we've got some real opportunities now at a national level and we're going to discuss some of those. But I think really helpful to think about how those might filter down to a local and regional level as well, so thinking about the role of integrated care systems. So nationally we've got the five year forward view. £1.4 billion of additional funding and we're three years into that five-year programme. Some real opportunities through local transformation plans to think about not only the needs of local communities but how additional resources could be best utilised, building on some of the expertise that already exists. Do you know, schools and colleges in Surrey are so keen to embrace this agenda, really excited about the Green Paper, really excited about the fact that I think they find themselves in a unique position to kind of assist and help with this early intervention programme. I can't tell you the enthusiasm on the ground that I'm feeling. I think for a couple of years now we've been much more focused on mental health and looking at the amount we invest in mental health. Certainly the mental health investment standard's been very helpful in ensuring that we are investing more year by year. But the Green Paper's made a real difference because it's helped us to think about what we can do in a different way, working in partnership with schools. And certainly for us in South West London, it's been a real catalyst for us to make some changes. Just thinking about for our audience some of the proposals within the Green Paper, we've got to the designated leads for mental health in every school. So these are going to be education staff that take uh, the real agenda forwards around prevention and health school wellbeing, investment in new mental health support teams working across cluster primary and secondary schools. And those teams are going to be providing some training and consultation to education staff as well as providing some assessment 
and brief interventions. And I think the final part of that offer is the piloting of that four-week access and waiting time standard into specialist services. The growing confidence of school staff in particular, who've got access, of course, to specialist advice and help, is really beginning to make a difference on the ground. A growing confidence that they're able to deal with some of these issues in a school setting, but also the knowledge that, when necessary, they can refer up to other services. And it's that fluidity of referral and contact between people that seems to be making a big difference. Yeah. I think the recommendations in there are absolutely right. The key question for local areas is what we do with it, because it's all very well having named leads in schools, but are they meaningful? And are they doing the right things? Are they really actually helping lead change in their schools? And certainly with the mental health support teams as well, it's a loss of resource. The question is, how do we make the most effective use of it? For us, what we've really focused on is using them to drive the prevention agenda, to focus on supporting emotional well-being in children and young people before they actually need interventions. Because in our experience, demand has been rising so much that if you just deploy the mental health support teams delivering interventions for children when they're mentally unwell, you're never going to meet demand. Our schools in Surrey that are adopting this approach are thinking holistically about the emotional health and well-being of their children. And as you say, if we were to deploy these teams with every child, it wouldn't work. But if we're thinking holistically about all the children, unable to spot the children who need a more specific intervention, then I think the, uh, the thing shows great promise for the future. And that sort of brings us on to the work that you're doing, Andrew, in southwest London. So tell us a little bit more about that. So it's interesting because we started with the problem of self-harm rather than with the broader problem of emotional well-being and, and mental health because it was a problem that we really felt in southwest London. We were seeing rising numbers of young people attending A&E and being admitted through A&E with self-harm. The system was telling us it was a problem. So we started with somewhere the system agreed that there was pain to be dealt with. And from that, we've actually ended up with a much broader programme. That's because of the way we approached the problem. We did quite a bit of engagement work with groups of young people to understand why they were self-harming. And we brought together a big stakeholder group to look at the problem. And what we concluded was, although there were great bits of work going on across South West London, we weren't providing effective early intervention and support for children around emotional well-being. And that was where we felt we needed to target our action. So we started with the problem of self-harm, but we've ended up with a strategy that is really built around a whole school approach. Mm -hmm. In terms of the strategy, we again did a fair bit of work with groups of young people and we did a, another system-wide workshop where we did some strategy generation and then we tested that with children, young people and parents. We did a survey monkey over a week and we got 1,200 responses where they ranked the strategies wow. um, and mm. really helped us focus on what would be most effective. So that drove us into a, a strategy that's built around a whole school approach and we're rolling that out across southwest London. We started thinking about this as a project in November 2017 and we really nailed our strategy in summer last year and then started the work with the schools. We're still in the process of, of rolling some of the elements out. It does take a lot more time and energy. I think we're going to end up with a much better outcome as a result, mm. but it's slow and you can only do so many of those system-wide programmes mm. at once. If people do want some ideas, I know Young Minds have a great set of resources as part of their Amplified programme, so if people want some ideas uh, either as commissioners or service providers about how to embed co-production locally, then please do look at their website. So that leads me on to some of the work that we've been doing in Greater Manchester with the Mentally Healthy Schools pilot. 
So this was commissioned by Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. And what they did was they commissioned a consortium of Youth Sports Trust, um, Alliance for Learning Teaching School, and some other third sector organisations, including 42nd Street and Place to Be. And what started off being quite small, so 31 schools, very quickly expanded to 62 schools. And I think the success of that programme has meant that this September, they're hoping to double that to 125 schools, which I think is fantastic. They started off with a self-assessment with schools, look at some of the strengths that schools already have and to identify areas that they wanted to work on, really. Lots of support to staff in schools, training through programmes like Mental Health First Aid, um, particularly working with senior leadership teams, providing mm. coaching. I think a key element of this offer was really supporting staff, thinking about staff resilience as well as their kind of confidence and competence around wellbeing and mental health. What I thought was really exciting is the way that they included or focused on sports. So Youth Sports Trust actually brings in athletes and sporting stars to talk about the importance of physical education, think about how you can use sports to manage stress as well as improve well-being. And then there was another kind of step for people who actually did have mental health needs where uh, they could access either direct work within schools or start to think about more specialist services. That's encouraging because it sounds incredibly similar to what we're doing. <laughs> that, that is positive, it, it, Even in it? terms of linking in with sports clubs, yes. um, we've, been, we've been exploring the same thing. So it's really encouraging to hear... Did you have any particular learning, do you think, from London around the kind of measures that you were wanting to focus on? I think the first learning was we just didn't have the data to understand how big the problem was in the first place, but also to be able to evaluate what we did. So we were working to start with off any admission data being the only solid thing we had and referrals into CAMS. So it was a really critical part of what we did was to start to use this as a, as a way of gathering more information. We did baseline surveys within the schools of what they actually provided. As I said, we're working with um, Cork, who are linked in with the Anna Freud Centre, to do a survey in years five and eight in the schools, which is around emotional well-being, so to get that benchmark. And then we're going to continue to evaluate that year on year to see what impact it has. There's something about resilient communities resilient families and resilient children and young people. That sort of set of language has started to get common usage. And I think a lot of this work is about finding common language between schools and mental health professionals and social workers and so on and yeah. so on. And we all come at it from a slightly different angle, but the moment you get some common language around resilience and, and so on, I think that begins to build a kind of real momentum. It's really important to get that right because you're not speaking the same language and you might think other people understand the term you're using, they don't, it means something completely different. Can I just pick up on something that Dave said around healthy families and communities because that was a real key theme that came out of the engagement work that we did. We ended up with three key things that people wanted to see, so support for pupils, support for teachers and support for parents. And actually one of the key elements of our whole school approach is a train-the-trainer model for parents to set up support groups linked in with schools but sometimes spanning across a number of schools and we're really fortunate to have South London and Maudsley Mental Health Trust who launched a programme called Empowering Parents, Empowering Communities which we bought for our cluster schools and we're going to be rolling that out later this year but there's, I mean, there's a huge appetite for this and we've talked about using the resources we have to empower frontline staff because if we just deploy our resources 
resources to deliver interventions, it's going to be quite limited. But if we can multiply the impact by training up our teachers, but also training up our parents, it has an exponential impact, on it. And don't you think the parents, as well as children and young people, are able now to talk about this stuff in a way, even three or five years ago, it was very difficult. I think that, yeah. you know, it's become okay to talk about this stuff, and that allows us to do some things that, frankly, before were very difficult to even approach. We had a presentation from EPEC. What they found through this model, through training parents to go and reach out, is their engagement levels have been much greater and, and they've got some of those parents you wouldn't traditionally get coming to some of these groups and they've got some really good outcome data actually. It was very impressive. We set about uh, trying to do something digitally driven. It's called Chat Health in Surrey. It's a tech service aimed at young people in secondary schools. And basically through the use of digital technology, it allows people to make contact with the school nursing teams in a really confidential way, be asking for kind of help with issues that they're facing every day. It deals with issues such as bullying, emotional health and well-being, but also sexual health services have, have become quite prevalent in that process as well. It also can link young people into other services. So the school nursing team are acting almost as a conduit for young people to kind of access other things in the community. We've been really surprised by the, the level of take-up by young people in Surrey. We're finding that if young people are really in trouble around feeling suicidal, they generally do use the well-worn routes to say so. But it's some of the lower-level things that have been coming up through the chat health process that really seems to have made a big difference. We're wondering about making it more digital, so this is a tech system. We think that probably there's an app out there yes. that we could utilise, but we're walking before we're running. We think this is a set of technology that's gone down very well with young people. It feels as if it's really connected with the way that they do business in their, yes. in their lives in, in the modern age. For the professionals who are then receiving the text and responding, I also think it's taken them into areas of earlier preventative work mm -hmm. and resilience and so on that prior to this process being in place really wouldn't have come up for us. So we're not seeing it as a solution to everything, but it feels to us as if digital solutions could be a really important part of the sort of menu of other services. Mm. There were the obvious technical challenges. I did wonder, yes. um, which Which took a, a bit of getting over, but... Uh, a lot of thought and frustration actually about how quick, uh, quickly we could get it going. And it took inevitably yeah. longer than everybody envisaged. And they were the normal technical problems. And as has been mentioned earlier, there were issues about data sharing yes. uh, and confidentiality, mm. which had to be thought about very mm -hmm. carefully. We tried to go as fast as we could, but actually taking the extra bit of time to think it through has meant that we've overcome most of those challenges pretty quickly. Let's start to think about different models and, and one of the models that really springs to my mind is Thrive. We talked about language. Many people might know that Thrive talks in the language of needs rather than disorders, which is far more inclusive, far more acceptable to not just young people but many of our partner agencies. And also really importantly, talks about the role that each and every one of us can have in supporting young people's mental health needs and that includes the roles of parents and carers, it includes the roles of a whole range of community services. So fabulous for that kind of emphasis on prevention and early intervention. I know Thrive very well from my work in Essex and we're just looking at our entire framework in Surrey and Thrive it's going to be because yeah. we're completely persuaded by the model. We're completely persuaded by the notion of a kind of strengths model rather than a deficits model. The services that will flow will be based on those principles, of course, 
but actually the language is very important. And I think some of the old language with the tears and so on and so on did lead you into a kind of deficit. And we even had some comments recently. We've got a, in the current model, it's coloured green and yellow and orange. And if you're really critical, it's red. And somebody said, that's the wrong set of messages. You know, red is for danger. So we've even been made to think about not just our language, but the way that we visually represent things for young people. What we're just grappling with is trying to get every borough in South West London to adopt the same language because the schools find it really confusing when some places are still talking about tears and others are talking about the different thrive terminology. So I think it's the right language to be using. We just need to make sure that it's consistent. I just think having a fairly straightforward model with a common set of language that everybody understands just gives you a platform on which you can build all sorts of things. So the things that you may do in different areas may differ because areas differ, of course. But actually, I think the Thrive model will become the kind of uniform model. And in London, it will be a challenge because you've got many boroughs. I'm lucky and sorry that I can do the Thrive model in the whole place in one go with 415 (laughs) schools all adopting it together. But I think it's been a revelation, the model, and I think we should promote it. The the nice thing is you move away from three tiers to having having the thriving, getting advice and sign-based thing. So it really does shift you to thinking about the earlier end of prevention in a way that the tiered model just doesn't do. found that far too many of the concerns around emotional health and well-being were shooting up to the top end of the team model when what was required was a much more earlier nuanced uh, approach and as we're beginning to develop that we're really beginning to see a different set of outcomes and the top end of the system was very overwhelmed it felt as if it just couldn't cope with the level of referrals that were rising up whereas now that's beginning to balance into a much more sensible coherent system so really keen on this in greater manchester we are using the thrive framework to really think about workforce development so not just trained frontline staff but the idea of how to embed supervision consultations of frontline staff feel really supported and I thought that was really quite interesting because I do sometimes think we expect our community um, agencies or frontline practitioners to be able to provide the support but actually they also need to support themselves and the training. We know this is going to be a long process but it's clearly going to be worthwhile which leads us on to thinking about transition and transition of children to adult services. So what about some of the opportunities? We've got the long-term plan that talks about support for young adults and how children and adult services can come together to develop that response. This was really brought home to me a month or so ago when I saw in my NGP practice I saw a 19-year-old girl who was self-harming. We've got a fantastic service that goes up to 18 specifically tailored for self-harm. I couldn't refer her into it because she was 19. She was absolutely appropriate for it. It was so frustrating. I had to refer her into adult IAP services, which was just not, the right, not the right thing. So really frustrating. And we build these cut-offs in, for, sometimes for good reasons, but they do just act as barriers for people getting the service that's right for them at the stage of development they're at. We're really looking at trying to, for all our children's services, uh, make them flex up to 25 And that's got to be one of the kind of key messages. How do we provide services that are not only accessible, but actually flexible, developmentally appropriate? So we see some young people who probably would do well 
in adult services, EIT services, you know, are really fantastic. But we also know that there are some of our young people that would do better in a sort of children's model. Birmingham, Norfolk, Camden, lots of different areas are developing that 0 to 25 yeah. model moving forwards. Clearly lots of challenges talking to practitioners. We know that really understanding the needs of local communities. But a really interesting point that kind of came through was the very different culture of children's and adult services. That sometimes people really find that gap really difficult to navigate. Mm -hmm. And whether moving forwards, we ought to be developing more youth services. I think we should be working with young people at the top end of the age range to really think not just about how they get services, but their own self-efficacy, their own resilience, mm. making people think about lifelong yeah. resilience. And I, I just don't think we've been good enough at that. Yeah. What would we want people who are listening from their systems to take away from this? From young people and schools' perspective, having a fragmented variable offer from borough to borough is really unhelpful. The fact that depending on which borough your GP is based in, you will have a different single point of access, different counselling services. It's really difficult for parents and young people to navigate, but particularly for our schools where they have kids coming from multiple different boroughs, it just doesn't work. So taking a system-wide approach to that and starting to pull it together and to create a consistent offer. There are some things you just need to look at on a bigger footprint and at scale. The other thing I think is the amount of time and energy that we've had to put into building and maintaining relationships, particularly when we're working with schools. To put the time and energy into those relationships is the reason this succeeded and to have senior leadership support for it to keep driving it through. The co-production word much overused in a way, but it does mean something and it means deep and immersive involvement of children and young people and their families in the planning. And I think if you do that well, it does profoundly make a difference to how you plan services. And that would be my first message. My second, I think, would just be about the use of the third and voluntary sector, mm. who I think have got unique experience in some of these areas. I think leadership and also that development of a shared vision bringing other partners along with you, I think absolutely critical. So let's finish with a quote from Frederick Douglass. It's easier to build strong children than repair broken men. Yeah. The Mental Health Support for Schools podcast featured Dr. Pratiba, Chipta Beeson, Dave Hill and Dr. Andrew Murray and was produced by Robert Mulligan for NHS England.